For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. Use the code word REBEL for a discount on pillows, sheets, pet beds, and everything else at MyPillow.com. Woo! Rebels, it's that time! Can you feel it? Are you ready to be a great parent? Do you want to feel like you're back on your honeymoon? Well, we believe in you and God believes in you. Rebels, it's time to join the rebellion. It's time for Rebel Parenting. What's up all you powerful parents out there? Rebels, thank you for joining the podcast today. Amy Morin, talking to mentally strong parents today. My goodness, this one is fire. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Trinova, Amazon.com slash Trinova, code word REBELPOD, REBELPOD, for 20% off everything they sell. The amazing smelling all-purpose cleaner, the blue agave dish soap, foam cannons, leather cleaner, tire shine, you name it, they've got it. Make your cars look good, make your house smell great. Trinova is sponsoring the podcast. Amazon.com slash Trinova, code word REBELPOD, for 20% off everything they sell. Sell. We're talking to Amy Morin today. My goodness, I love talking to her so much because you get real world advice, tools you can use right now today with your family to not only benefit your kids, but make you feel like a better parent, to make you feel like you're doing a good job and know that you actually are doing a good job. You are going to love this. 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. Amy Morin on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. All right, Rebels, what's up? We are live with Amy Morin. 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. If you're on the upgrade, we've been going through it all month long, taking a deep dive, and it is it is a goodness, Amy, thank you so much for being on. It's a deep book, too. It is not light reading. It's packed. It is packed. This is We have done more in the study guides for the upgrades than any other book we've done so far. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm oh. happy to, to talk about it. It is so awesome. So awesome. And this portion of the podcast is sponsored by MyPillow, MyPillow.com, code word REBEL for a discount on a four-pack of pillows. Huge fan of MyPillow. And thank you to the voice of the martyrs helping those persecuted around the world, persecution.com. I love that we have sponsors now. It makes me so happy. Oh, my goodness. Amy, we've been going through, th- I, have th- I have this many pages of notes, like so, so many going on here. I can't possibly get to all of it, but you make a statement early on in the book and it says it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. At what point did you realize that, that then made you want to dive into a book for parents? You know, I'd have so many people who would come into my therapy office and sometimes it was just really basic things that they didn't know. And when we talk about those things, like about feelings or how do you change your feelings or how do you sit with being uncomfortable? And so often people would say, if only I had learned this earlier in my life, if I could have learned this 20 years ago, it could have changed the entire course of my life. And I had a lot of parents who said, you know, I want to teach my kids to not make the same mistakes I did, but they didn't know how. Mm. And just simple, you know, tweaks to the way they were parenting, little adjustments could make a huge difference and they were eager to learn. So I just really wanted to put this book out there after the first book hit the shelves from readers. That was the most common question I got was, this is great, but how do I teach it to my kids? Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to say, you know, I could write a kid book, but I don't know too many 11 year olds that are going to sit down, read this book and then change their life. So it makes much more sense for me to write the book for parents and say, this is how you become a coach. 
So you can be right there in the moment when your child's having a problem and you can you can teach them and you can help them learn from their mistakes and then say, this is how we do things differently next time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a fantastic one. It's really apropos that you said that learning to sit with your feelings or sit with being uncomfortable. Laura and I have done a series of broadcasts lately on addiction and depression and some other things, some that we've experienced personally and some that we've got from coaching But one of those things that I've heard is Americans don't want to feel any pain for any reason for any length of time. And especially with our healthcare system currently, when a doctor has five minutes with you and you come in and you go, I'm sad all the time, and their main tool is a prescription, they go, oh, well, we can give you this and you'll feel better. Instead of saying, well, what's going on in your life? Like we talked about when Laura and I were first married, Laura lost her mom suddenly to a heart attack when she was five and a half months pregnant with Lincoln. Lincoln was colicky for seven months, her first seven months of his life. And Laura almost died two weeks after giving birth. Well, those are real reasons to be sad. Almost losing your wife causes great consternation inside of you and great trauma of contemplating a life without this person you thought you'd spend the rest of your life with losing your mom losing your mother-in-law when you're brandly new married and you're pregnant is a huge deal and having a son that you can never comfort that screams and cries 24 hours a day for seven straight months all of those are really good reasons to be sad but when you go and talk to a doctor they don't go well why are you sad And you go well i almost lost my mom and he goes oh well then you should go to counseling Instead of that, it was just, oh, I'm going to write you a prescription, you know, and then even if they do write a prescription, I have no problem with antidepressants, but also prescribe counseling on top of that to learn how to sit with your feelings. So how are you teaching parents to teach their kids to sit with those feelings? Like that's a big one. So many parents, they never want their kids to have any bad feelings and they want to fix those feelings. You know, my wife went through cancer a year ago and had a very traumatic facial reconstructive surgery, and it made my son very, very sad. Well, it's also a really good reason to be sad, contemplating losing your mom and seeing her go through pain and having the surgery and and the recovery. How do we teach our kids to better understand their feelings, sit with their, and be okay with feeling sad for a period? Yeah, I agree with all that you said. I think so often as parents, it hurts to see your kids sad. It hurts to see them upset. So our tendency is to rescue them. So, you know, your child doesn't make the basketball team. So you say, let's go out for ice cream tonight. Or your child's sad because he didn't get invited to a birthday party. So you say, well, you know, we're going to throw a party of our own. Or, you know, and we just want to always make it better. But sometimes you can't make it better. Mm. And just trying to cheer them up is like putting a a Band-Aid on an axe wound. It doesn't do us any good. So it's really important to teach kids, well, when are your feelings a friend and when are they an enemy? It's a friend when it helps you. So being sad can help you honor something that you lost. Being angry because there's a bully at school, maybe that will help you stand up to somebody or make change. Or maybe when you're excited about something, it it makes it so you're, you're happy and you're looking forward to it. But sometimes your feelings are an enemy. When you're angry and it gets you in trouble at school, that's a problem. Or when you're sad and you just can't get out of bed for three days, that's a problem. So it's really about teaching kids, when are your emotions a friend? When are they an enemy? You don't need to be happy all the time, but when your emotions are getting in the way of living your best life, then sometimes you do need to change those feelings. So maybe it is about saying, how do I cheer myself up? How do I calm myself down? But as parents, we often want to take that responsibility and do it for them. But instead, we need to be teaching kids, how do you calm yourself down? How do you cheer yourself up? How do you cope with being sad? 
and to proactively teach them those coping skills rather than us becoming the person who regulates their feelings for them. Mm, mm, mm. I got to ask, how often do you hear from parents that are like, oh my goodness, I've been using all of this on myself all the time. Like I didn't know my own feelings could be my friend or my enemy and my feelings are getting me into trouble and I had to learn how to self-regulate my feelings too. You have to get that all the time. I do. And, you know, in fact, when I when I wrote this book, I had a, a focus group of about 25 parents and they were from all walks of life. But I have these parents and a lot of them are really successful that, you know, they've got MBAs they are out there in the world doing all this stuff and their kids are doing well. But so many of them said to me, I'm practicing this stuff on myself right now because nobody ever taught me. I had a woman who was in college and she said, you know, she'd gone back to school in her 30s, but she said, I'm using all of these skills in school and I feel like now I'm doing better in college. I can only imagine how much it's going to help my kids to have these skills when they're in elementary school. So I think nobody taught us this stuff. I wasn't taught this stuff as a kid. And it's funny because we know the number one predictor of somebody's success in life is their social and emotional skills when they're in kindergarten. That kids who can regulate their emotions, kids who have social skills tend to be more likely to go on and be successful as adults. Kids who lack those skills are more likely to be in jail, to rely on public assistance, to not have a job. And yet we still focus more on can you read and write and how good are you at math? Well, that's true. You know, and in a way, every now and then I hear people like, oh, I can't believe my parents never taught me this. And I can't, you know, and they get this, you know, kind of victim or blame mentality. And I always go back to my mom's dad. My mom's dad was raised in the Great Depression and he dropped out of school in the seventh grade to go to work in the coal mines in North Dakota because his alcoholic dad wouldn't take care of the family after his mom died giving birth to the 13th child. Now, he never, ever in my entire existence of being around him talked about what a bad dad he had and how sad he was when his mom passed away and how nobody took care of him. He talked about how excited he was to join the CCCs and do national work projects so that he could actually feed his family. He talked about the pride of going into the Navy and serving his country and being a Union tile layer for 50 years he never talked about that. Well, it's because he had work or die. That was right. literally his existence. If I don't work, I and my siblings will all die because no one was going to take care of them. My kids will never experience that. We live in America during the, you know, the 20 teens. It's never going to happen. And so emotionally, psychologically, we are a very different generation and we have the bandwidth to feel much deeper because we're not in fight or flight. We're not in survival mode 24 hours a day. And so I think, you know, this is two generations ago. It's not my parents, but it's their parents. I mean, that's so, such a short time ago that it was literally I might die if I don't drop out of school in the seventh grade and go to work. I might die. And my siblings probably will as well. And so they didn't have any idea how to love their kids properly, a lot of them, which translates down. And so we're having to learn all these things newly. And I think one of them in the very beginning of the book, you talk about the victim mentality. It feels like today there is this great divide in culture, but one of the sides of the divide is victimization. It is... I'm a victim of circumstances, I am being wrongly treated, I'm disenfranchised, and everything is about that identity of victimization. What does that do when you live a victim mentality and you teach that to your kids? 
you know, I, as a therapist, I'd run into so many parents who would come in and say, well, my, my child uh, is getting a bad grade in math class and it's because his teacher doesn't like him and we want you to write a letter to the teacher, you know, to bail him out. Or somebody who said, you know, my kid didn't make the basketball team and it's because the coach picked favorites, but my kid's really good. And I got so much of that. And I have to say it changed in the, and since my beginning of my career to, you know, late in the late 2000s, I saw a big shift in how often that that was happening. And I think, you know, as parents, we don't want to blame our kids. We don't want to think it's their fault. It's easier to place the blame elsewhere. Mm. But then we're doing our kids a huge disservice when we do that. I mean, our kids are growing up to think if you strike out in the baseball game, somehow you're a victim. And I think it's so important to teach them when do you need to advocate for yourself and mm -hmm. when do you not? So I have the exercise in the book about speak up or shut up. When do you speak up? Yes. When do you say something? And when do you just accept it? That if, you know, the umpire, if you don't agree with the umpire in the game, stay silent. That's okay. You don't have to agree with it. But on the other hand, if your friend's being bullied at lunch, you need to speak up. And how do you, you know, the subtle differences in when to speak up and talking to kids about that and how to recognize when your rights are actually being violated versus when your feelings are hurt. Oh, yeah. In the minor way, my son's a big video game player. I love video games, and so it doesn't really bother me at all. And... I noticed there was this theme. Whenever he would lose, it's because the person was cheating and they were a hacker. And I finally sat him down one day. I was like, hey, man, that's just not true. No, it's true. It has to be true. I'm like, it's for sure not. And let me explain why. If most of the time everyone lost because somebody was cheating, nobody would play the game. Nobody plays when everyone else is cheating. You'd lose all your money the game would go bankrupt. It wouldn't happen. And we watched a couple of videos on what happens when the company finds out there is a hacker. There's all these things companies do when they find out you're using cheat codes or hacks. Uh, one of them puts you into an arena where only other hackers and cheaters play. So you're playing against all cheaters and you. Or your character in the game has to wear a dunce cap for like a month straight, which is this big badge that says, hey, I'm normally a cheater, and nobody likes to have that either. There's all these things, and he's gotten definitely so much better about that. I love the speak up or shut up one because for me, the speak up or shut up translated into so oftentimes we don't like something, but instead of standing up for ourselves, we talk to somebody else about it. Yes. And I'll tell you, uh, I learned this best from Dave Ramsey, the financial expert. And yep. he is an incredible leader. And I went to his entree leadership training over a weekend, or was it one day? I think it was just a one day thing. And he talked about hiring and firing and employees and all these types of things. But his one of his big, big non-negotiables is complaints only go up. They never go side to side. They only go up because complaints side to side, you can't do anything about it. I'm complaining about my job, about my pay to my coworker. Well, they can't do anything about that. And so he absolutely forbid that people complain side to side. If you want to complain, if you got something you don't like, then go to your superior, complain to them. If they don't take it seriously and you feel still feel that you're being wronged, go to the person above them. Never, ever, ever side to side. And he does that with his leaders especially, with directors, with C-levels. If you have a complaint, either shut up about it, do something about it, or go up, but never down and never side to side. We call that the Saving Private Ryan rule. And in the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's a scene where uh, the kind of the lower guys are complaining and they ask the superior, what do you think? 
And he just kind of shut it down. I was like, it doesn't matter what I think. I either go up or I shut up about it. Yeah. And I think we see that play out in the office all the time, right? That you complain about a coworker sort of in hopes of getting support or getting validated of, isn't that other person a jerk? And it just goes nowhere, keeps us stuck in a dark place. And I think that's a wonderful thing to teach kids from a young age. If you're going to address a problem, then address it. But gossiping, complaining to other people, getting your friends on board, it's not going to do you any good at all. No, it'll definitely make you viewed differently amongst your coworkers. It's so funny you talked about sports. I wish I could remember if it was either Kevin Hart or Chris Rock, uh, the comedian was talking about their daughter was playing on a basketball team and wasn't getting played very often. I think it was Chris Rock. And his wife was just livid about it. And he was like, you know why, don't you? Like, you know why she's not being played. She's so like, what are you talking about? All the other girls are better than she is. Like, it's not favoritism. Like, if she wants to train in the offseason and work out real hard and get a coach and learn better skills and ball handed all these different things, well, then she'll get to play too. But until then, she goes sit on the bench. You know, that was when I was in sports when I was younger, I wasn't super athletic and I wasn't uh, really, really coordinated. And I sat out a lot. My parents never said anything. It's like, well, that's, I had, a, in fact, I had a baseball coach in offseason. I remember, and I'll never forget that guy. It was, my goodness, how old was I? I was 10 or 11, so it's 1980, 1981. And my baseball coach, the private coach that I went to with other kids that wanted to get better at baseball, was the coolest guy on the planet. He had an afro, a mustache, and he drove a Firebird with an 8-track in it. Like, he was the coolest, coolest guy. Played loud music, played... You know, my Sharona and all the stuff from the late 70s, early 80s. I'll never forget that guy. And he hit grounders to us for hours and hours and hours to get us better at the sport. That's what my parents' uh, decision was. Like, well, you're not getting played. You should get better. That's what right. – just get better at what you're doing. Right. And I see so many parents now that get caught up in this sort of a, a rat race of thinking, I need to have the kid who's the best one on the sports team. They need to be the best and the smartest in the class. And – when you really step back and you look at the, all of the, the pressure they're putting on themselves, the pressure they're putting on the kids, and you say, well, why? What does it matter if your kid's the best one on the team or not? And they really don't have an answer a lot of times. Or sometimes they're caught up in thinking that if you don't have the best math grade, that somehow you're going to be a failure in life. And we can explore, you know, does that really mean you're not going to go to college and mm -hmm. you won't succeed in life? But I think it's just so easy in the age of social media, especially and when we live in a world where all the other parents seem to be doing it, you kind of jump on the bandwagon and end up doing it too. And then you yeah. have to sort of take a step back and think, well, this is logical. Does this make sense? <laughs> Definitely. I heard Gordon Ramsay being interviewed and he was talking about his, his son who was in finals and was just freaking out over his Latin grade, was just losing his mind over it. And he said, I finally sat him down and said, hey, have you ever heard anyone use Latin ever? And he was like, no. And he goes, great. Try your hardest. Don't worry about it anymore. Like, get an A, get a D. Who cares? Like, right. you're not going to use this again. This isn't going to matter. And I think that's a hard... Talk to the parents out there, Amy, because this is what I realize as a parent today. There are so many parents that are essentially doing their kids' homework. They're writing their college essays for them. We had Kay Wills Wyma on, and she's got a thing in one of her books called Not the Boss of Us, where she just said, I love you too much to fight over your homework. Like at a certain age, you're going to do it or you're not, and you'll suffer the consequences either way. I just can't fight every day over it. 
But what do you do to the parent that says, yeah, but all the other parents are writing their kids' college essays and having it professionally edited and doing their kids' science fair projects for them, and mine is going to get a worse grade because essentially other families are cheating. And there right. is some truth to that. Like we do see that. I mean, I saw that in my job. I had a parent call to negotiate their child's job contract. And I was like, um, I can't talk to you about this. It's like, well, I want to talk about the points and the raise and the time off. And then I was like, I'm sorry, you've, your child's 30. Like, what are you doing? You've stunted your child's growth. They know you're talking to me. I would be so embarrassed if my daddy called my boss to negotiate. But these kids were like, oh, no, that's I need help with this. Like, what do you say to that parent that says the other parents are cheating? My kid's not going to get in X, Y, or Z. You know, I think it's important to take a step back and say, what are your values? What's really important to you in life? And is that really the most important thing? Yeah, I work as a college professor as well. And, you know, my one of my first semesters teaching, I had a student that was going to get a C minus. She comes up to me and she says, I can't get a C minus. And I said, excuse me. And she's like, I, I can't get a C minus. And I was like, well, that's the grade you earned. And uh, she said, no, no, no. You know, we don't do that in our family. We always get really good grades. I need to know what do I do to get a better grade. Well, you should have come to me sooner to talk about your grade, but you can get a C minus and you need to learn how to cope with the C minus. That's where the real success in life is going to be. Not is only can you get a C minus, you are going to get a C minus. Like that ship sailed. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think for parents to know that just when your child isn't doing the best or he's struggling or you are tempted to jump in and rescue them, think about what a, what are you cheating them out of? And it could be that, you know, and it doesn't do you any good to get them in the top college if they didn't earn it on their own. Or if you have a kid who isn't that motivated to do their homework, doing it for them isn't going to do you any good. And I talk in the book a bit about how many HR departments are hearing from parents because they have to try to motivate their kids to, to get a job, to get up in the morning, to negotiate their salaries, just as you say. And at some point, we have to let them fail on their own or we have to let them try because mistakes are important. And Kids, you know, it frightens me when kids have never had the opportunity to fail. They don't know how to rebound from a mistake. They don't know what to do when they're uncomfortable. And I, so I guess for parents to just take a step back and say, what am I, what real life skills am I teaching my child? What am I cheating them out of if I do all this for them? And how do I let them know that it's okay to, to fail? It's okay yeah. to bounce back. And the people that end up being the most successful have the social and emotional skills to deal with setbacks and rejection too. Mm. And Here's the thing. At the end of the day, your child will be a better person than yes. that other child. They really yes. will. They'll be stronger. They'll be more resilient. They'll have better coping skills. Maybe they won't get into X, Y, or Z college. Maybe they won't. That's true. And I want to say something about that too. And as life goes on, as and you got to ask yourself, what's the most important thing for my child? Is it that college or is it when they're married and they have kids of their own, they can cope with the ups and downs of marriage and parenting? Is it they can cope with the ups and downs of life? They have feelings. They can understand. I mean, what's the most important thing for your kid? And we get into this rat race where it's like, well, everyone says it's college. Well, but right. that's certainly not true. This is the other one that I heard. It's better to be the top of a lower college than the bottom of of an upper college. And what they mean is this kid was trying to get into Harvard and they were like, stop, 
Stop trying to get into this Ivy League school. You're going to be in the bottom 5%. You're going to always feel behind. You're going to feel rushed and overpressured all the time. And you're not going to get any attention from your professors because they are paying attention to the top 5%. Get into a one-rung lower level of college where you're in that top 5%. You're going to get more accolades, more time with a professor, more one-on-one, more attention, all those things. You got to figure out where do you want to go and why. You know, that's right. the whole thing too. In my jobs, no one ever cared where I went to college. Now, I'm a communications exactly. person. I talk for a living and I've never been asked what my grades were. That just doesn't happen anymore. Nobody cares. In fact, I'm getting ready to go back to school and I was talking to the college because it was like, you need your transcripts. And I was like, really? I'm almost 50. Like, do you really want to know what I did more than half my life ago? And they're like, oh, we didn't know you were this old. No, we don't care. And I'm like, oh, that's good. It's like, who cares what I did 25 years ago when I was in college? What You care what I did right now. And so that's so much easier. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, because there is so much emphasis on where you went to school, what kind of grades you got. And you're right. Nobody's ever really asked me where I went to school or how my grades were. But, you know, and now we're hearing more about companies who want people who don't have a college degree for one reason or another. You know, so I think the world is changing and those sorts of things that we think really matter don't matter nearly as much as we think. Mm. And it doesn't make sense to pressure our kids to, to do things that they're not really academically prepared to do. Definitely. Let's talk about this. I tell my kids this, and I'm trying to learn new ways to teach it to them. Most of life is failure. Most of life is getting it wrong. It's the exception to the rule where you get it right. I take it to skateboarding. I grew up as a skateboarder. I don't skateboard that much anymore, but I still enjoy it. And I still watch it all the time online and on TV. The skateboarder's life is trying to trick 10,000 times and failing 10,000 times. And then you learn a trick and you do it every now and then, but then most of your time is spent failing at the next trick 10,000 more times. And like with video games, my son actually has gotten really, we were looking, this is crazy. We were looking at the world rankings on, I'm not going to say what video game it is because it's controversial and parents flip out when I talk about it, but he was number 25 in the world. He's 12. He's 12 years old. He just has that skill set. And I was like, that's crazy. Do you know how many millions of people are playing that? And he had no concept of it. And I was trying to visually show him, like, if you're here, there's this much of a pyramid below you. Like, that's so amazing. But it took losing over and over and over and getting shot over and over and over again most of life is failure. How do we, as parents who don't want to see our kids fail, teach our kids most of your life is going to be picking yourself back up and moving forward when you fall down? I think one of the best things is just talk openly about failure. So often kids, you know, they get in trouble when they make a mistake. They messed up. They lied. They stay out too late. They do something. So we give them a consequence. And not to say you shouldn't do that because they need a consequence when they break the rule. But then when you think about it and you think, well, am I really teaching my child to learn from those mistakes or to cover them up or to hide them? Because, mm. you know, it's embarrassing when you fail and you make a mistake and you think I'm going to get in trouble. So then your child starts lying and they just become a better liar. So I think it's important to just talk about mistakes. Talk openly as an adult. What did you do to mess up today? Well, you know, I lost my cool at work or I, you know, cut somebody off in traffic, whatever it is, but talk openly about that and then talk about how you're going to do better. But 
because so often we we don't talk about failure. You just want to share the good parts of your day, share mm-hmm. what you did well. So, you know, make it a dinner time conversation. What kind of mistakes did you make today? What'd you learn from failure? And if we just make it a more open-ended conversation and make kids know that it's okay to fail, we're supposed to fail, and failing at least means you tried. And that's yeah. really, and you put yourself out there, You whether you tried a new musical instrument or you tried out for a team that you knew you probably weren't going to make, way to go. That shows you're pushing yourself to the limits. Mm, yeah, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right, right. Trying is so much better. That's an interesting one, too, with mistakes versus defiance in parenting. I was getting off an airplane, and I was waiting for a friend that was in the back of the plane to get off. And I watched a kid get off the airplane with his mom. The mom was haggard. She was tired. I mean, who knows what took place during that day. And the little boy had headphones on and a video game, and he set it on the ledge, bent down to tie his shoe, and the the cord pulled the video game off the ledge, and the case broke. That mom chewed that kid out for so long. Apparently, it was the older brother's game. The brother was going to be furious. There was so much yelling going on, and I was like, "Ooh, lady, that was a mistake. There was no, it wasn't irresponsible. It wasn't reckless. It was just a plain mistake. Now, I don't know what happened before that. Maybe all kinds of things took place. Who knows? But I just thought, the look on that kid's face was bewilderment, and I knew what was going on in his head is, I don't know how I'll ever not do that again. Right. Like, if this was something that I legitimately, you know, if you bump the table and spill the milk, that's one thing. If you take your glass and pour it upside down while staring your parents in the eyes, completely different scenario. Yeah, and I don't know about you, when I make a mistake as an adult, sometimes I like sort of rejoice at the fact that I don't have parents to, to lecture me or say anything about like, you know, if you spilled the milk, you did something stupid, Ugh. you think, boy, that was dumb, ha, 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 and I can move on with my day. And so to, to let kids know, yeah, we have, I mean, who hasn't dropped their smartphone because you, you know, bent over and did something? We all do it, but... And, you know, and what an opportunity to teach a child, too. Like, if you broke something, even if it was an accident, you're going to, if you borrowed your brother's game, you're going to have to earn the money to pay for a new one. Right, even if it was an accident. That's the consequence of borrowing something, having it in your possession, and breaking it, even if it was an accident. Now, I might help you pay for it. I might give you the chores and jobs to pay for it. And you have to understand there are consequences for all kinds of things in life, even if it's an accident. Right, because I hear a lot of kids say, well, it was a mistake, or I didn't mean to, and they think that that excuses them from having to do something. Well, yes, we all make mistakes, but if I back into somebody else's car, I didn't mean to do it, but I'm still liable to pay for it or to help fix it. And so I think that's an opportunity, those times in life as we teach kids, yep, you might think it's not fair. Maybe somebody else even bumped into something and and knocked it over, but if it's in your possession and it gets broken, here's what you do. And you just start teaching them that from a young age, that, yep, life isn't always fair, but here's how you respond to it. That's right. It's called doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Yes. You know, And then teaching your kids those situations. You can bring up past scenarios. I was talking to Lincoln about that. I borrowed a surfboard from my brother-in-law that somebody else had been riding just before me, and they had broken the bottom fin on it and didn't say anything. Now, I don't know which person it was, but I know it wasn't me. But when I got in and that fin was broken, oh, I paid for it. And it was an anniversary present from my sister-in-law to my brother-in-law. And I paid for it to have a rush job to be done before they left. And it was a bunch of money. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. But it didn't matter. It was still in my possession when it was found out somebody had done it. Well, too bad. 
The other one, I was in my car, uh, windstorm, Colorado Springs, and I went to open my door, and I cracked the door a little bit, and the wind caught it, blew it out of my hand, and it hit a BMW next to me. It didn't hit a 1987 Honda Civic. It hit an M3 BMW. Well, I'm in a parking lot, and there's nobody there, and my kid's like, what are you going to do, Daddy? And I was like, I'm going to write down all my information and put it under the guy's windshield. And there was like the tiniest little dent. It was such a nothing thing. And I'm in the process of writing it down, and I'm putting it under this guy's windshield. And I hear this, hey, what are you doing? This guy starts yelling at me. And he comes over, and I was like, I am so sorry. I opened my door. The wind caught it. I hit it. I go, I need to pay for your door being fixed. And he was taking this huge breath in to start yelling, and he goes, what? And I go, I'm just so sorry. Like, go get it looked at. Whatever it costs, I'll pay for it. And he goes, really? And I go, well, yeah, I I hit your car. And come to find out, that had just happened to him. He had that car. He came out from something. There's a big ding in his door, and the guy just took off. Was like, well, forget you, and left, and he had to pay for it. Well, it ended up being $700. It was so expensive. It was an accident. Didn't mean to do it, but it wasn't my car, you know? It just, it's... What a life lesson to show, you know, I didn't have to do it. I could have jumped in the car. Most people would have driven away, pretended it never happened, even convinced themselves. No, I have. No, no, no. My brain would never let me do that. In a million years, I couldn't do that. No, I give money back to cashiers that overpay me. Like, I don't have that ability. I can't do it. I just don't. I don't have it. Like, my guilt conscience is so overbearing. It's totally funny that you you talked about being an adult so you don't have to tell your parents things. I lost my wallet like four years ago. Just, I don't know what happened. I lost my wallet. And I was talking to my dad on the phone and I told him I lost my wallet. And he's like, I haven't lost my wallet since I was 12 years old. And I was so irritated. I just went, oh, you win. Right, right. Like, Yay. The most unhelpful thing you could have said to me in this moment. Thanks for being sympathetic <laughs> or empathetic to me. Goodness right. gracious. You know what? Let's close with this. So often we make decisions and we parent out of fear based on past experiences, past actions of ourselves, things we went through, things we're afraid of happening to our kids. Talk to the parent out there that does struggle with it. I think the overachievers often parent out of fear more often. Uh, The ones that really, really, you know, rebel parenting is made up of a bunch of type A people. So, those of us that have made decisions based out of fear because we didn't want something to happen or not to happen to our children, what are some of the ways we can overcome that and teach our kids to not make decisions based off of fear, but based off of what's best for them? So I think it boils down to just recognizing when are you anxious, what kinds of things make you anxious. And for parents, it's a little bit different. Some parents, it comes to physical things. They don't want their kids to climb on stuff because they just envision them falling and getting hurt. For other parents, it's a, you know, it's a B in math class that's terrifying because they think, you know, again, it's going to ruin your future and I'm going to now allow you to ruin your life and you're only 12 years old. So just, you know, take stock of what, where your fear comes from, what sort of categories is it in? You know, I talk to some parents who are worried if their kid eats a piece of candy that their teeth are going to be ruined or they're going to end up obese and their anxiety goes through the roof about that stuff. But for other parents, it's like, I can't let you go to somebody else's house because their parents might be bad people and I'm envisioning horrible things. And a lot of that comes from our own trauma, our own problems, our own insecurities. And it's less about our kids' needs. 
So really identifying, okay, what are my fears? Where do they come from? And then instead of saying, I don't need to be fearful, ask yourself, how do I manage my anxiety in a healthy way? And sometimes you just ask yourself, would a reasonable parent feel this same way? And you don't have to be on the bandwagon and other parents don't have to agree with you. But if you're noticing that your kid's the only one who doesn't get to do all the things other kids do, that's a pretty clear sign that that you're overprotective. And to take a look at what are all the damaging aspects of being an overprotective parent, the list could go on and on, but basically kids aren't prepared for the real world if we don't allow them to experience real life right now. And we've probably all met that kid, the one whose parents say, you can't ever eat sugar, and then they go to a friend's house and they eat an entire bag of cookies because they just go overboard. We aren't letting kids figure out how do you regulate yourself. We're instead just becoming so militant and overprotective that we don't give them the opportunity. Or Mm -hmm. a child who has never had a chance to make some decisions or make some mistakes on their own, the minute they get out of the house and get to college, they go crazy and get themselves in all sorts of trouble. So I think it's about looking at that. What are the consequences of being overprotective? How do I manage my own anxiety? Maybe that involves going to counseling for yourself to figure out what are the coping strategies to deal with anxiety. I have Mm. some parents who say, you know, just certain things, I can't do it. I have to let my partner do it because I get so anxious. You know, I can't watch my child say play football, but we decided that we're going to do this. So I'm going to let my partner bring them to football practice because it's too much for me. So maybe you make some adjustments in your life too. And, but overall, we just want to teach kids, not that it's bad to be anxious, but that it's bad if your anxiety runs your life. So rather than trying to reduce our fear and reduce their fear, let's increase our courage. How do you act brave even when you don't feel like it? And how do you look at a situation and say, is this a good idea, even though it feels scary? Obviously, you want your child to know if his friend says jump off the bridge, that he can think, gosh, this isn't a good idea. My anxiety right now is helpful. But on the other hand, if he says, you know, I want to try out for the soccer team, but I might fail, his anxiety back to that friend or enemy issue is anxiety is an enemy. So it makes sense to say, I'm going to increase my courage. I'm going to do this anyway, even though it feels scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Jordan Peterson was talking about that. And he said, you know, one of the best things you can do for your child is find out when they're doing something that stretches them. It goes above and beyond. You know, they're doing something that's scary that they normally wouldn't do and then praise the heck out of them for it. Yeah. You know, tell them, oh my goodness, I'm so proud of you. You did that thing that you wouldn't normally do and you went above and beyond or you helped out extra or whatever it is and really praise them for that. I was thinking when you're talking about the kid that never had sugar, Todd Marinovich was a football player at USC and he was a phenom, had never eaten a Twinkie by the time he was 21 years old, you know, had never had, he was doing protein shakes and, and, you know, all these things that his dad was just enforcing on him. Well, and he blew up. He just exploded and fell into addiction. And it really was sad his life after that, because he had never learned coping mechanisms, you know, how to be a normal kid. I think sometimes I ask myself, yes, this seems scary, and what's the worst that could happen? Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And then is there anything you can do in case, like for me, we don't let our kids do sleepovers anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's a wise thing. I think with pornography and unless you really, now if you know this family inside and out, upside and down, then fine, do whatever you want to do. But I just think that general oh, 13 boys are going over to someone's house to have a sleepover. We're like, oh, no, we don't know all those 13 kids or their background or their parents, their families. And pornography was a big one for us because it it gets most kids at around age 12. And I just thought I would be so sad 
if this got a hold of my kid at this age. And I was thinking, what can I do? Like, I can't guarantee you're never going to see it. It's the age of the internet and the smartphone and the tablet and the computer and all those types of things. And so I had a conversation with Lincoln and I just said, hey, buddy, because we've explained kind of generally what porn is and he's just aghast. Like he cannot believe, you know, we're essentially we're like naked people on the internet. And he was like, ah, just (laughs) why daddy? I'm like, well, that's a longer conversation, you know, and But I asked him, like, have you seen that yet? And he was like, no, I haven't. And I was like, okay. This year, there's a very high probability someone's going to try to show that to you, whether it's a friend or at another friend's house or somewhere. And I just said, if you will leave the situation and tell me, I'll give you 200 bucks. And he was like, what? Now, he can't figure out why. He doesn't know why it's that big of a deal to me. But he does know it is that big of a deal to me. And I know for him, $200 is like a million to him. He can't even fathom $200 in his hand. And I'm like, I don't care what you buy with it. You can buy candy or Fortnite skins or video games or another control. I don't care what you get. And this is how innocent my 12-year-old is. He was like, well, Daddy, if that happens and I get the money, can I get an Xbox with it? I'm like, of course you know I hope this never happens, right? He's like, no, 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 no. But he's like planning in his head how he'll spend the money if it takes place. But for me, it really did mitigate that fear. In fact, I told some of his friend's parents, who I know kind of well, what I did. And I've had a couple of them do the same thing with their kids. They were like, that was genius. Because I asked the dads, if you could go back and erase the first time you saw pornography, how much would you pay for it? And he's like, oh, anything. I'm like, yeah. 200 bucks is no big deal when it comes to that kind of a decision, that overarching, that life decision. That's why I've done it with him. And then I don't worry about it. Like he goes to these kids' homes and I'm like, it's okay. Because he said, well, can I just tell him to turn it off? And I'm like, nope, you got to come home. He's like, well, what excuse can I use? And I'm like, lie through your teeth. I don't care what you say. Tell him you're in trouble. Tell him I said you had to. Make up anything you want in the moment. You say anything to call dad to come get you or to get you home, that's it. And he was like, okay, he's totally cool with it now. Yep. Well, you know, I've never had a kid or an adult come into my therapy office and say, I'm scarred for life because I didn't get to go to a sleepover, right? (laughs) And I hear a lot of parents who are afraid sometimes to set limits because they think, oh, I'm going to hold them back. But to know, all right, what what is it you're protecting your kids from? Why is this so important to you? And if that's your core values, by all means, and you say, you know, I don't want to do this, and here's how we're going to set those limits, and then creative problem solving like you did to figure out how do I want to keep you safe and this is what works for us so I think that's great I appreciate it Amy my goodness I love this book so much I gotta ask did you get any pushback from publishers for a quote-unquote negative title like instead of 13 things positive parents do like it's 13 mentally strong parents don't do did you have any pushback on that I didn't. So, you know, if you know the story, it started out as an article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. 50 million people read the article. So my publisher was thrilled to write the book. Wow. And and then we sort of came up with this idea together because I said so many parents are asking about it. um, What do we want to do? And we just decided it made sense to keep with the same theme and talk about, hey, give up these bad parenting habits. Mm -hmm. And occasionally um, somebody who sees the book in the store will send me a letter and say, you have to be more positive. 
And what I'll explain to them, it just takes one bad habit to hold you back. And I want you to work smarter, not just harder. So give up this one thing and your life will be better. So it's so cute. You explain it. I just delete those emails. I'm like, oh, you didn't read one page of the book. Then I'm not going to give you one page of my time. None for I do you. Have those days too. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, I can honestly, we don't do the upgrade on just average books. We do this on things that are transformational. I can tell every parent of any age child, honestly, you know, you've got a kid that is newly born and you want to prepare for life or you've got them. If they're in your home, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. You can go to any chapter, any section. Really, you can read it straight through all the way through. You can just go through the titles and be like, you know what? I really do parent out of fear, or I really have given my child so much power over me. I need help in that area. That will mm -hmm. give you instant relief on the spot. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for including my book. I'm honored. Oh, it was a joy. Absolute joy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rebels, for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening, Rebels. We appreciate you. Thanks to Amy Morin for coming on the pod again today. Wow. She is on fire. What a great show. Special thanks to The Voice of the Martyrs for sponsoring our podcast. Persecution.com is their website, helping those being persecuted around the world for more than 50 years. They do a phenomenal job of providing Bibles, materials, and support in persecuted countries around the world. Persecution.com. God bless, Rebels. We'll see you soon. Rebel Parenting is produced by Rebel Media House. And when you need a little help with your marriage or parenting, and everyone does, you can find it at rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the Rebel Update by texting the word REBEL to 444-999. That's R-E-B-E-L, and the number is 444-999. We love it when you share Rebel Parenting with your friends and family, so thank you. God bless. Thanks for spending your time with us. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Rebel Parenting.